Hey everyone, welcome to Goodbye Privacy. I am your host. My name is James Azar. Find me on Twitter, James underscore Azar1. Make sure you follow me as I try to grow my Twitter community just a little bit more. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about internet cookies and what they are. What do we have to agree to on every browser? And so much more. But before we kick off today's episode, let's talk about patreon.com forward slash cyber hub engage where you can support our podcast and help us grow our content. Being a loyal cyber hub engage follower means you care about security and privacy and we care about it too. This is why we are asking our loyal listeners to help support us and you get a lot of really great things there as well. Uh, you get to watch us live and, and interact with me throughout the podcast, whether I'm doing this one, Goodbye Privacy, or the Cyber Hub Engage podcast, where every time we have a guest, we do a 15-minute live Q&A session with our guests where you can kind of chime in and talk to some of these experts we bring on the show. You also get some very, really cool swag that Mike and I continue to work on, including your hashtag privacy uh, and data cartel t-shirts that you all want to get and you know you want to wear it next time you're at a conference so make sure you go to our uh, website cyberhubengage.com or go to patreon.com forward slash cyberhubengage again that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cyberhubengage e-n-g-a-g-e to support us there. But now let's get to today's episode. Cookies. Man, I love cookies. Don't we all love cookies? I mean, who doesn't love cookies? Cookies are great. They're delicious. They're sweet. They're nutritious. They have all these great little side effects in them. I mean, everyone knows a child that enjoys cookies. Santa Claus loves cookies and milk on Christmas Eve. In fact, every family leaves out cookies and milk. Those who celebrate Christmas, of course. I don't, but, you know, those who do (laughs) and definitely enjoy leaving some cookies and milk out for Santa. But what do cookies have to do with your privacy? Well, a lot. So let's think of that definition of a cookie, really. When we all think of cookies, and like I just said, when I said the word cookie, we all smiled. We all got a little smile. We were picturing our favorite chocolate chip cookie or oatmeal raisin if you're one of those nut jobs or a macadamia nut cookie or an Oreo cookie or any kind of cookie. And those are great. But what's an internet cookie? Because those aren't great. Those are like your nutritionist or your dietitian or your personal trainer that tells you do not touch cookies. Well, As your privacy personal trainer, let me tell you this, folks. You do not want these internet cookies. So to do this, I decided to go online. And I went to the reliable source called Wikipedia. And I asked Wikipedia, give me a definition of a cookie. And after it showed me some chocolate chip cookies, I asked for an internet cookie. And then that's where I got the following definition. So it's an HTTP cookie, also called a web cookie, an internet cookie, a browser cookie, or simply cookie. Um, And it's a small piece of data sent from a website and stored on the user's computer by the user's web browser while the user is browsing. Cookies were designed to be a reliable mechanism for websites to remember stateful information such as items added in the shopping cart in an online store or to record the user's browsing activity, including 
clicking particular buttons, logging in, or recording which pages were visited in the past. They also can be used to remember arbitrary pieces, arbitrary pieces of information that the user previously entered into form fields such as names, addresses, passwords, and credit card numbers. So mind you this, my cookies just went from being delicious and very, very happy to making me understand that the word cookie in internet terms means spying. It means that we willfully allow organizations to plug into our browsers and spy over every little thing we do. Every website we visit, how long we spend on that page. What do we put in our shopping cart? How long did I stay in our shopping cart for? You ever notice you put something in your shopping cart at Amazon, you go to Facebook and all of a sudden your Facebook timeline tells you, hey, don't forget to finish getting this thing on Amazon. Hashtag data car tells. Folks, that is that simple, right? They are taking our data in an effort and we're going to get to that later in the episode, right? But then I kept going on Wikipedia and remember now Wikipedia is a great source of information because it's written by an art and arbitrary group of people that's very, very open source. Everyone contributes, people authenticate information. I get the gut feeling here though that Google and a lot of these other companies paid some money to make sure that this part sounds good to consumers because here's the other part that comes right after what I just finished reading. Other kinds of cookies perform essential functions in the modern web. Perhaps most importantly, authentication cookies are the most common method used by web servers to know whether the user is logged in or not, and which account they are logged in with. Without such a mechanism, the site would not know whether to send a page containing sensitive information or require the user to authenticate themselves by logging in. So the, the authentication cookies make sense, and, and a lot of companies use authentication cookies to verify when you're on, on a website. But think about it, if you're using a company computer, chances are IT is actually logging everything you do on the company computer. So if you're, you know, not a, uh, if you're looking for a job on a company computer because you want to quit your job, there may be a very good chance that someone in your company is actually seeing and logging that activity. And later on, your employer could come and take action against you for it. Finally, the security of an authentication cookie generally depends on the security of the issuing website and the user's web browser and on whether the cookie data is encrypted. So mind you, some cookie data, in fact, most cookie data is unencrypted, folks, meaning anyone once who accesses it can see everything in it. It essentially means that your data is unencrypted. Your browsing history, your most of your credit card information, in fact, if it's not stored on a reliable data management system within your computer, it's probably unencrypted and hackers can easily get to it. And then we keep going. So security vulnerabilities may allow a cookie's data to be read by a hacker. <laughs> Key line alert, right? Unencrypted or security vulnerabilities can let a hacker actually read the data on your, your cookie metadata. And, and that's really important simply because of the fact that if a company doesn't secure its cookies, any data it contains about you is out there. And by the way, over the weekend, Outlook.com, Microsoft just notified people that hackers could read their unencrypted Outlook.com emails 
for six months because they were storing data unencrypted for six months. So that's out there, just so you know. And they can use this cookie data. Hackers can actually use it, guys, to gain access to your system, to your data, um, and get your user credentials. So this is, <laughs> again, while people will argue that cookies, and we'll get to that here shortly, are an essential part of modern internet, unsecure and unmanaged and untethered and uninformed consumers in the cookie world become a weakness to someone and can expose anything you do online. And while you could agree to have someone track you because you agree and you hit okay on the website once you hit the cookie aspect of it and you said, okay, I'm fine, or you want more information, when you click on more information, it tells you what it does, but then you keep browsing and the cookie is planted in there. In the United States of America, you do not need to opt in for them to track you. Once you hit the website, a cookie is automatically launched. And once it's in there, it's in there. That's why if you go to Expedia and you search for a ticket to fly from New York to Los Angeles, when you go to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, anywhere else, you'll see advertisements that target you for exactly that ticket. These cookies allow that to happen. That's how these cookies work. They're not so innocent. They're deadly cookies. They're Mrs. Fields cookies. They're full of sugar. They get your kids all hyped up, but when they come down, they realize that they just had a bunch of garbage. But let's think about this in another way. There's another kind of cookie, and we just talked about the authentication cookie, and there's so many kinds of them. We're going to talk about most of them on today's show, but a tracking cookie is... (laughs) Here's, here's, I'm going to read this for a second and then we're going to go into it. So the tracking cookie, especially third-party tracking cookies are commonly used as a way to compile long-term records of individuals browsing history. A potential privacy concern that prompted European and U.S. lockmakers to take action in 2011. European law requires all websites targeting EU member states gain informed consent from users. Informed is in parentheses, informed consent. What is informed consent? We'll talk about that later. Before sending non-essential cookies on their device, this is the buzzword many of you have heard over the last several years, and it's called GDPR. So if you've been a follower from CyberHub Engage from day one, in the first about two months of doing this podcast, it was at the hype of GDPR enforcement. We were just getting ready to enforce it. Everyone I had on, we talked about GDPR. Go back, listen to the episodes I did with Tyler Johnson, Richard Warner. I mean, we were having a blast talking about GDPR. I'm a strong advocate that GDPR doesn't work. It doesn't work because it creates loopholes. And while the Europeans are blind to the loopholes, no different than other um, law law enforcement or legislatures, they wanted to create some sort of law to let the people know, hey, we're doing something about it. And on the CyberHub Engage podcast, I recently interviewed Michael Daughtry, the former CEO of LabMD, who fought the FTC and won. And he gave a really great one-minute short that we have posted on our CyberHub Engage Facebook page, talking about how lawmakers are bureaucrats. They don't really bureaucrats. They don't really want to pass a law. They want to pretend like they're passing a law, but they're not really passing a law at all. In fact, they'd rather keep discussing it. No different than our immigration law, tax reform, and healthcare. Years and years and years of talking, years and years and years of campaigning, and years and years and years of no action. Letting different organizational units, whether it be the FTC, the FEC, the FCC, the 
SEC, the CFTC, and others try to, write, to try to enforce laws that were in hundreds and hundreds of years ago in a world where those laws are no longer applicable. And here's the thing about GDPR in Europe. While it allows you to opt out and control your information, once you opt back in, all your data is opted back in. And so the key is that once you opt out, technically the, the, the company's not allowed to contact you anymore because it's lost your consent. But if you engage with the company on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on a Google ad, and you opt back in again, they now have your information. And this continues to go over and over and over and over again. And it's an endless cycle. And these companies know it. To me, GDPR was a money grab against big companies by the EU. It wasn't really about consumer privacy. It's in the name of consumer privacy, but it's a money grab by governments who have socialistic agendas that don't really work. They're running into surpluses and they owe a ton of money. And so one way to get that money was to go after companies and fine them for not keeping consumers' rights privileged. A bunch of BS, if you ask me, it's just trying to, it's essentially blackmailing businesses, only legally doing it. It's no different than the mafia coming to someone's door and saying, hey, if you don't pay us this money, we're going to burn your store down or we're going to break your legs if we don't get 20 points off your action. The reason for it is because big corporations use tax havens to get away from paying their full tax liability. Amazon has been doing that in the States for years. They pay zero federal corporate income tax. Zero. You hear people from both sides of the aisle talk about it. It was part of, you know, the tax reform was reducing some of these um, uh, cuts that people make or some of the loopholes in the tax code and making it a more flat, flat tax rate so that everyone pays their fair share. But point of it being is that in the EU, in order to get Ireland on board, Ireland was given a 5% corporate tax incentive. And out of Ireland, because they're an EU member nation, any company that operates out of Ireland pays that 5% income tax rate. And France, Germany, and other economies realized that their people who wanted to work at Facebook and Google were moving to Dublin and sitting in those headquarters and not paying tax. So they were losing revenue. So they decided to pass the GDPR as a way to go after those companies. It's that simple. It's really that simple. They couldn't tax them because they had a tax haven within the EU. That's in the US, there's something very similar to it. It's called the state of Delaware. And while no one on record here can name one congressman or senator from Delaware, they got two senators and I think they've got a handful of congressmen in Congress. It is the tax haven for the U.S. If you're a foreign corporation, if you're a consultant and you travel all over the country, you register your company in Delaware so you don't have to pay state income tax because there's no state income tax in the state of Delaware. A lot of EU companies that want to do business in the U.S. and don't want to set up shop go to Delaware to do just that. It's zero income tax. And if you're not a business that has a physical presence anywhere in the U.S., 
meaning you're a one or two man show and you're operating from all over the country, then you can go to Delaware and do just that. But you don't see New York or Jersey or anyone else going, oh, you're going to do that? Fine, we're going to pass a privacy law and we're going to tax all those Delaware companies for something like that because we live in a republic and a democracy and you can't just do that. But in the EU, the way for the EU to fight the Irish and what the Irish did to promote and bring business into Ireland and get and become the tech hub of the EU. Ireland is the technology center of the EU. Google, Facebook, Microsoft, they're all they're all of their European headquarters are based in Ireland. And while they have small offices across different parts of the EU, they send all their income, every single dollar they make to Ireland, not Germany, not France, not Spain, not Portugal. And because of the EU customs law, I can hire a bunch of Spanish speakers and have them move to the EU. They wouldn't even need an employment visa because once you're part of the EU member, you state you're free to live anywhere in the eu when you ask why brexit was why the britain wanted to leave the eu it's that reason alone folks there were so many foreign workers coming and taking jobs to live in the uk that they wanted to control it you had people coming in from very poor eastern european countries that were part of the eu bulgaria romania and others that were living in the uk Seven families to a house, living one on top of the other, mattresses on the floor. There's a bunch of show on Netflix that I'll, I'll, I'll tell you folks about where you can watch and see what that kind of immigration, uncontrolled immigration did to that country. It's crazy. So we talked about GDPR, but there's really so many, so many more different types of cookies. So there's a session cookie, also known as an in-memory cookie. And there's some that are transient and some that are non-persistent, meaning they're only temporary there. It could be a 24-hour cookie, a 72-hour cookie, a session cookie. And once the session is over, the cookie is erased and it's gone. It has an expiration. Some, most cookies, by the way, originally in the marketing world, seven, eight years ago, were 30-day cookies. And then people were like, well, 30 days isn't enough. I want 60 days, 90 days, and now cookies are permanent. And I'll show you later. So if you use Safari and you go into your history and you go into clear history, you'll see something on there that says clear all history and clearing all history will remove related cookies and other website data. That's in Safari. And in Chrome, I believe the way you do it is when you go to history in Chrome and I am not a big Chrome user, so I am going, you guys are going to have to give me here a minute. But if you go to show full history, you can actually clear your browsing data. And clearing your browsing data allows you specifically to clear all your cookies. And if you do that every day, you clear all your cookies every day. Now, some of that is inconvenient because some cookies remember your passwords, and then you've got to re-enter your passwords. And you and and that's how they get you with cookies. So you've got convenient, nice, good cookies, you know, like the small mini cookies that you can take a bite of. And they're delicious. They're not a lot of sugar, but they kind of fix your cookie fix. And then you've got the big sugar-fixed Mrs. Fields cookies. Do you remember Mrs. Fields cookies, like those soft cookies? You'd smell them in the mall or like the Nestle Toll House ones. Yeah, same exact ones. 
And so those are the persistent cookies and they're there to advertise. They're there to follow every little thing you do and customize your actions. When you open an Amazon account, Amazon plants a cookie. If you ever wonder, if you ever want to do that, here's what I challenge you to do, folks. You want to do an experiment? I'm going to give you an experiment to do. Go get a new device. Don't sign in. Create a new email address. Create a new Amazon account. Create a new Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter account. Then go in. And I want you to go into Amazon first. And once you're in Amazon, I want you to look up a few things. I don't know. Look up a light bulb. Look out for a book. Then I want you to go into Facebook. And I want you to see how those things start to show up on your newsfeed. And then how custom data, how Facebook starts to customize your experience based on what you were looking for. And then realize that in the name of a persistent cookie, for an unspecified amount of time, you can be spied on. Radically. And the word spying is now a big deal, right? Because Attorney General William Barr said that there could have been some spying by some intelligence agencies on President Trump's campaign in 2016. Whether it was legal or not, that's a whole different issue. But again, that's another problem, right? So here you go. You have the the word spying now being used differently in the media today, but I'm talking about your internet spying, your privacy online, which does not exist, right? So when we look at that, persistent cookies are tracking cookies. And tracking cookies, track every little thing you do, every click, how long you've been on a page, what you clicked on, what you looked at. And they have an expiration date at some point or another, 180 days, 90 days, and it depends because, see... In the previous episodes, we talked about how business analytics and business data actually takes your, your, your information and it processes it. So if it knows that an average consumer to buy a light bulb, right, takes them two weeks to decide, then this persistent cookie for the light bulb will probably stick with you for three weeks because that's the time frame by which people make a decision. And after that, they're just going to get rid of it. They're going to erase the cookie because your data is no longer relevant. Because while you looked for a light bulb on Monday, three weeks from Monday, you're still not looking for a light bulb. Chances are you're done, right? But if you're part of a lifestyle diet like keto or gluten-free diet or uh, uh, anything else, they'll chase you around with those for months upon months upon months. Same thing with fitness and other ones. They'll chase you around for a while because your life cycle is greater. And so you're constantly seeing it. Your newsfeed is constantly providing you that content, whether it be on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever. So there's a thing called a secure cookie. And then a secure cookie operates under an HTTPS signal, right? And so it's an encrypted connection uh, the HTTPS. We all see it. It's the green lock. Um, we just posted a video in one of our daily doses of cyber that essentially says this TLX and TLS and encryption keys are actually a bunch of BS that, that really there's a market for the decryption of it and that any data that's encrypted by TLS certificates is actually can be unencrypted through the, through the marketplace. If you haven't seen it, go to cyberhubengage.com, go to daily dose of cyber DDOCs and look it up. It's a Georgia state university research Um, that shows that TLS certificates are a thriving marketplace 
and that this lock signal on your browser is nothing more than just a good looking lock to make you feel better. But technically, if hacker can get his hands on a key and those keys are out for sale, they can unencrypt and see all that data. So that includes your credit card data, social security numbers, medical data, you name it. Anything that is stored on a TLS certificate can be exposed. So while they say secure cookies are secure, I call bullshit. And everyone knows that. Hashtag data cartels, hashtag bullshit. So there's HTTP only cookies, which can only be accessed by an API. So APIs to me, folks, are the reason internet connections are meant to be broken. If you ever tried to access something and it says this connection doesn't work, it's broken. That's because the API. APIs need to be updated and secured. And when they're not, they become a essentially pipe for hackers to access and gain data. They become a pipe for other organizations to access and take data. And most of everything, they don't allow any sort of privacy whatsoever. API, well, it's great to connect and it allows for an easier way to connect websites and integrate data. It's also a huge risk. There's a same site cookie and a same site cookie is websites that put a same site cookie in. And we're not going to get into those. They're not very common. Um, Google pretty much killed, um, tried to kill this, um, even though they kind of started it. <laughs> um, they're trying to kill it. I think this will rear its ugly head again in about a year or two for same site cookies once internet traffic and people launch you in different parts of their website and away from others. Uh, but until then, we're going to skip that. We're going to go to the third-party cookies. And so a third-party cookie... Uh, belongs to a domain different from the one shown in your address bar. So hence, if you're on Facebook.com, you can have a cookie that is an Amazon cookie in your Facebook account. And this cookie appears to show you content from external websites. So for example, if you go to a website where they're selling and their ads and banners are part of a different um, ad group, right? So you see ads brought to you by Google AdWords or ads sponsored by, so forth. That's a third-party cookie plugged in a website. So in this website, you've got two cookies. You've got the first-party cookie, which is the website cookie to track where you go after you finish their website. Then your second piece is your third-party cookies. Those are tracking your movements, right? And in some websites, they have cookies readable for over a 100 different third-party domains. So you could have a hundred different companies spying on your actions while you're online. That's crazy. And finally, there's something called a super cookie. And while a super cookie isn't this big, huge cookie, it's a top-level domain cookie with a public suffix, for example, .us or .co.uk or whatever. And they have an origin of a specific domain name that could be amazon.com. So the thing about super cookies is they're a security concern. And the reason for that is because they're often blocked by web browser. And if they're unblocked, then an attacker, a hacker, can actually control malicious websites through your super cookie. And that's how hackers sometimes operate. They create a super cookie through legitimate websites, through third-party <laughs> data vendors, right? And then once they plan it, 
they want to take over and they'll show you a malicious website. And one of those that I've seen was actually a great little example. So someone showed me how a super cookie planted in someone's computer was able to let the hacker access that person's banking account and empty all the information. But every time the person logged into their account, they were seeing a fake screen that showed their, the balance before the hacker actually took money out of their bank account. And by the time they realized that there was no money in their bank account, could have been two, three, four, five days later, the money's long gone. This is what cookies do. So while in one part they're advertised as this great little thing online, it's this harmless cookie. It's a cookie. It does nothing. It does everything, folks. It does everything. And when it does it, it can really not only invade your privacy, but it can allow hackers to gain access to all your data and do so much more with it. And tracking cookies, which I believe are the worst kind of cookie, because tracking cookies essentially allow anyone to see what you're doing online. And that can be an advertiser so that they can customize your advertising, or it can be a um, your employer, it can be a data analytics firm, it can be a political action party. When you think of the most recent presidential election, and you think of the Mueller report that's now scheduled to come out this Thursday, uh, redacted by the DOJ, we're going to discover that the Russians tried to manipulate this election not by really supporting the Trump campaign, but by making it look like they did. And they did that by planning cookies, by building data analytic firms, and by building out a database of the U.S. population, and then by spewing misinformation specifically set for that population. And when they did that, they created division. That division is no different than the Muslim Brotherhood being funded by Iran in different parts of the Arab world to bring down regimes that were not friendly to Iran. We saw that almost happen in Egypt. We saw it happen in uh, Tunisia and Algeria most recently. The Russians employed a similar campaign here in the U.S., and it wasn't only the Russians. I mean, we talk about Russia because Russia is the big evil, but really the people that are behind all of this are the Chinese. And the reason I say it's the Chinese is because, well, it's really simple. The Chinese require any company to work in China to give China government access to their source code. Once the Chinese government has access to that company's source code, it knows that company's vulnerabilities. Once it knows that company's vulnerabilities, it can deploy hackers or other people to collect data and information. Once they have that, they can sell that data. And my guess is that the Chinese are collecting and the Russians are working it. The Chinese are great at collecting data. They're the best at it. The Russians are the best at using that data and weaponizing it to create division. They do it within the realm of their own population. They've done so successfully in Eastern Europe. When I spent a year in Kiev, it was really amazing for me to see the difference in generations between those who grew up as part of the USSR and those who didn't. 
and then those who refused to speak Russian and only spoke Ukrainian, and those who only spoke Russian and did not speak Ukrainian because they felt like they were Russian even though they had a Ukrainian passport. That misinformation campaign was no different than watching Eastern and Western Ukraine divided, no different than the civil war that just happened there in 2014, folks. When we talk about our online privacy, the Russians know how to weaponize data they get. They're not very good at collecting data. The Russians never were. The Chinese were always better at collecting data. But the Russians knew how to weaponize it. The Russians are very, very smart when it comes to weaponizing data. Putin's been doing it for 20 years. He was doing it through newspapers in Europe. And he's doing it again now by empowering right-wing parties in parts of Europe. Purely people who want to go back to the USSR, the Cold War way of doing things back in action. And here's the thing. Back then, it was newspapers. People got their information from one or two newspapers. If you read the New York Times, for Christ's sake, that's all you read was the New York Times. And if you read the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, that's all you read. Today, you get your information from a slew of websites. You are tracked everywhere you go. They see everything you're doing. And these cookies, they have a really important implication on your privacy and your anonymity on web users. Now, you can VPN. And you hear a lot of these VPN ads now that are saying, hey, encrypt your data. Don't show people who you are. The super cookie can defeat any VPN. In fact, most companies have a standard VPN within their router so that any outgoing traffic is actually masked by that VPN. A VPN is only good on a public Wi-Fi system. If you travel a lot, if you work in a co-sharing space or a coffee shop, you should really check out a VPN. If you're at home, you should get a router with a firewall, the most of basics, and secure your home connection. Put a firewall there. That's also a way for you to control what anyone on your Wi-Fi network at home sees or surfs. You can limit your kids accessing YouTube so that after 8.30 in the evening, you can set a firewall setting so that after 8.30, no Facebook, no Snapchat, no YouTube, no Instagram, no nothing can be accessed. You can do that through a firewall. And firewalls used to be very, very complex, but they've become as easy as installing a router at this point. Companies have realized that people want to secure their internet connections, and they're trying to make it easier so it's not that complex. And it really isn't. And when you think that, you know, cookies are only sent to servers that are setting them or servers on the same domain, that's not always true. Cookies go into these massive data pools. We can call them data lakes. And then based on how that data is categorized by the cookie and who categorizes that data is the company that issued that cookie, then that cookie and that data is being pulled by multiple sources because there's a data cartel, hashtag data cartels, that are trafficking your data. And once they traffic your data, they're trying to make money on it. 
And advertising companies pay a lot of money to get that data because you know what? If I'm running a campaign for a t-shirt company and I want to sell the most t-shirts so I can make the most money, I am going to pull all that data on all those com people that are interested in t-shirts, whether you consent it to or not. The fact is that when you hit OK, you actually consent to them collecting your data and selling your data or sharing it with other parties they are a vendor too. Now, how do you know who those parties are? How do you know it's not the Russian or Chinese government spying on you as a U.S. citizen? The EU with GDPR tried somehow to limit that. They're holding companies a bit more accountable for it. But is that always the case? Because once you opt out and you opt back in, you're in. And you've got to opt out every time. But those bits and pieces of data that they collect, that can create a timeline. Soon enough, GDPR will no longer be relevant. And we're going to need a stricter and better law in the EU. Now, there's a law that was been brought forward here in the U.S., and we'll talk about that in one of our next episodes. But if we're going to have a real effective privacy law in the U.S., we need to address the use of cookies. We need to address, and, and, and Congress doesn't need to address the company. I, I feel like that's always been a problem in the U.S. We go and we make a law that dictates how the middleman does something. We don't dictate how the top player should handle it. When we passed the RICO Act, the RICO Act was intended to go after crime organizations and not the soldiers on the street for drug dealing or blackmail or whatever. It was designed to go after the head of the mafia. It was designed to go after John Gotti. It was designed to go after Paul Costellucci. It was designed to go after those guys. That's what the RICO Act was for. And that's how you got rid of the mob. You created RICO. You gave law enforcement enough power to go after these people and take him down. So why are we not creating a privacy law that targets the top of the chain? Why are we going after the middle of the chain? See, GDPR in concept is a great law. In concept, it's going after the companies that collect that data. But it's not going after the companies that traffic it, traffic that data. And that's where it matters. Facebook will still sell that data. Amazon will still sell that data because that is a revenue stream and they have an accountability to their shareholders to maximize their business profitability. And they're doing it by trading our data. And so much more. And while the EU cookie directive and the policy and the data protection acts are all somewhere there, they're still not enough. So what does all this mean to you and I? Well, a lot of the stuff we spoke about was technical, and I tried to make it as simple as, pos as possible. I hope I didn't lose you there. But the term cookie seems harmless. And let's start with that. It seems harmless. But it really isn't. It isn't harmless. We are sold cookies, but in that same way, we're giving up our privacy. And there's no recourse over it. We're not paid for it. We're not even given consent for it. We're given no options. And while I read the explanation for the use of the word cookie and how great it is, it's still used in a way 
where it gets us as people to think it's harmless. Because when you associate cookie, you think of an Oreo or a chocolate chip cookie or a peanut butter cookie or a macadamia nut cookie. Someone explained that cookie to me. I want to know who the genius is between, b- behind the macadamia nut cookie. I think that's the only way macadamia nuts were ever sold. <laughs> it's in a cookie. I've never seen anyone sit on a park bench eating macadamia nuts going, oh, these macadamia nuts are delicious. just doesn't happen. It was the macadamia nut farmer who put it on a cookie. And that's how he got people to eat it. (laughs) If they called the cookie for what it really was, we're going to spy on you. Then that would be different, wouldn't it? Now in the EU, when you opt out, you technically can't be followed and your data has to be erased. But there's an exemption in there. That exemption is once you opt back in, that's it. And this only applies to EU residents, meaning people who reside within the European Union, between the 27 or 28 states of the EU, depending on whether or not you still consider Britain as part of the EU. As a U.S. individual, you have very little rights to your data or your privacy online. Fact is, You've got no rights whatsoever. If you sued Facebook, you would lose. Their terms and conditions clearly state they're allowed to do whatever they want with your data. And only when you delete your account will they not use your data. But then if someone else has your details, tags you, says they were with you, or does whatever, that gives Facebook the complete right to do whatever they want with it. Now, some companies that collect data give us the illusion that we do control our data at any time, right? The opt-outs, the delete your account. But let me ask you something. When was the last time you saw something online and then you saw it disappearing immediately when you deleted it? Nothing does. Everything is cached online. Google sees everything. They've built robots and algorithms that do just that. They're watching and keeping track of everything we do. And they're chronicling it. They're they're, they're making books out of it. When I was a kid, and I'm sure a lot of you have heard the same story, people would say, you know, your parents would tell you to be a good kid because that's how, you know, God or Santa or whoever would know whether or not to give you good presents for your birthday or the holidays or whatever. These companies have taken that concept and made it in a real life because everything that we do revolves online and they know it. They have a monopoly over it and they don't really care. They give us this illusion. They make us think we know, but we don't really know. And these cookies that allow these companies to track our movements, our habits, the websites we visit, things we speak about, yeah, If you go into your settings on your iPhone, and I only know how to do this on an iPhone, I'm sorry, I am not an Android user, and we'll get into that in a different episode. I'm an iOS guy through and through and through. But if you go to Facebook, Facebook has a button in in this. Go to your settings, scroll all the way down, get to Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and I'm not just isolating Facebook for the sake of Facebook, Instagram, whatever. You'll see that it has a permission that says microphone, and it's always on, meaning the microphone's always listening. 
So you know how in one of the first episodes I said, you know how you're sitting around your house and Alexa's listening? Well, your phone's listening and your phone's with you everywhere. Your phone's with you in the bathroom. Your phone's with you when you shower. Your phone's with you right next to the bed when you're, you know, you're making love to your wife or girlfriend or husband or boyfriend. Doesn't matter. They're always listening. So they're tracking not only our movements, our habits, our websites, but everything we speak about, any search term. And now they sell us all this. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg with the utmost sincerity <laughs> stood in front of Congress and said, we collect data so that we can make your life online better, so that we can customize your experience, give you what you're really looking for. Senator, Congressman, we want to give you a unique online experience. And the word customization is a buzzword for me. It's been a buzzword for like 10 years. We customize things to, for you. We make things only for you because we, every single one of us wants to feel special. These companies know it, so they use that word for it. <laughs> they go, you're special. We're going to customize just this for you. Now, I want to come from an objective point of view on this. Just how much customization are you doing? Who determines that customization? And if you're listening, I want to wrap up with this. And I want to ask you these questions to ponder on, to consider. Do you trust a company customizing your experience online? And if you do... Ask yourself these questions. This is my challenge to you as a CyberHub Engage listener, as a Goodbye Privacy listener. Ask yourself these questions. What does it mean to customize my experience online? Does it mean that if I'm a right-wing conservative, that that's all I see? And if that's all I see, is that going to radicalize me one way or another? Am I missing the other side? I feel like so much information is put out today. So much of it. But where's the other side? Where's the balance to it? See, that's a customized online experience. It's a balanced online experience. It's one that gives you both sides of the argument. We don't do that anymore. If you're all for this one thing, whether it be politically, racially, socioeconomic, or even brand-wise. I'm an Apple guy. I don't see any Samsung ads. Why? Because I use the iOS. So chances are Samsung isn't really coming after me. Because I've had iOS for so long, converting me would almost be impossible. But am I missing on some of the Android benefits i might be but i'm never marketed any android stuff because i don't fit a profile of someone who would leave ios and go to android unless i posted i hate ios then i guarantee you i would see an android app an android promo something on my timeline somewhere because i become an opportune time 
to try to convince me to go the other way. But if I only see what I agree to, what I search to, what I want to hear, am I losing my objectivity as a human being? Am I being, am I being censored and unable to explore any topics I've got? And does that put me at risk of any limited exposure to one topic? Could it radicalize one? Um, I was watching this show on Amazon uh, vi- uh, Amazon TV over the weekend, and it's called FBI Takedowns. And in one of the episodes, they talk about this Egyptian um, kid who tried to take down a building in Dallas, and he became radicalized. And what was very interesting for me is he was searching for propaganda that only radicalized him. At what point did the internet start and the effort of customizing him only showed him that? At what point could he have seen a more balanced approach to radicalization? And I'm not just taking that one as an example. There was another one who was a neo-Nazi who tried to blow up an MLK Uh, parade in uh, Eugene, Oregon some years ago. And the guy's internet browsing was all neo-Nazi. Now, for for, for, and white nationalists, so for the sake of argument here, for the sake of being completely, completely argument, um, for the sake of being completely, you know, fair and, 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 and in the middle, when we expose one side to one argument or another, and the most recent one that we can think of is this whole Russia collusion thing with the Trump campaign. If that's all you're seeing is that Russia colluded with Trump and Trump colluded with Russia. And then the Mueller report says that's not the case anymore. There's no real proof of collusion. But for two years, you're being sold this narrative. For two years, that's all you're seeing everywhere you go. And anything that doesn't support that narrative is looked at as bias. Are we losing objectivity? That's on the political side. But what happens on the consumer side, on the buying side of it? If I only search for Apple products, does that limit me? I'll give you an example. Um, the algorithm on Uber and Lyft, great apps, but a lot of people don't know this. Um, and how I know this is a very good friend of mine, Kevin Peterson. Um, he posted something on LinkedIn about a year ago. And then I tried what he did. So he was at a bar with his daughter and they both went in to order an Uber from the same location, taking him to the same location. And his daughter's fare was $7 less than his. They ordered at the same exact time using the same exact app. So Kevin was wondering, well, how in the world did that happen? And so I asked Kevin, I said, what kind of credit card were you using? And he goes, well, I had my Amex. And I go, your daughter, she had her debit card. Hmm. So the payment type that you use, the credit card you load with, that determines how much you're willing to pay. They've got algorithms. If you're using your debit card, 
chances are you're going to pay less money than if you're using a credit card. And the way these companies know what is what is through the bin number. The bin number is the first six numbers of any card issued. Those six numbers let you know whether it's a Visa, MasterCard, Amex, or Discover. And they let you know whether it's credit or debit. And they let you know whether it's gold, platinum, diamond. You know everything by the first six digits of a card. What bank issued it? Everything. So Uber and Lyft know that when you input your credit card information, if you input a company card, they can charge you more and you wouldn't really care because it's a company card. But if you put your debit card, it's the same thing. And I did the same experiment here in Atlanta. Very recently, I had to get a Lyft to the airport and I have two cards on my Lyft account. I've got my Amex and my Visa debit. And when I put my Amex, the ride was $46. And then when I grabbed my other phone and did it through my other phone through my Visa debit, it was $40. Six more dollars. Amex does not charge you six more dollars for a processing fee. Amex's processing fees may be half of a percentage point higher than anyone else. So why are they charging you more? Because perceivably, if you have an Amex, you're willing to pay more. So if they're tracking your data and they're tracking your movement and they're tracking your credit card information, what does that mean for what you're paying online when you're shopping? The smartest people I know are the ones that go and buy the Visa debit cards <laughs> from Publix or, or anywhere and use those to shop online because that shows that's a gift card. And so you're going to get the best price possible because they know you're going to shop once with that card and be gone. So they're going to want to sell you anything and everything you can, you can get your hands on. So knowing this, I want to ask you to question yourselves and question and think about these questions. And is customizing the internet real and limiting our ideas and thoughts? And is it actually creating greater division than actually bringing us together and helping us have a healthy debate. For those of you that are on Twitter, you can find me, James underscore Azar dot, dot one on Twitter, and we can actually enjoy looking at what's going on there because you see the conversation tends to escalate quickly. No different than on Facebook. You can follow us at CyberHub Engage or on Instagram at CyberHub Engage. And I want to challenge us all to really look at this. And I'll end with this. Since you've listened this long, go to patreon.com forward slash cyberhubengage and support our podcast. We've got some great entry level stuff with as little as $5 a month. So go there, support our mission here at Cyberhub Engage. Mike and I made a very, very silly video that you guys could enjoy. So make sure you watch it and support us on Patreon. Share this with your friends and family because next time on Goodbye Privacy, it's going to be all about Amazon versus Walmart. How are these two giants taking over the online shopping world and what does it mean for our privacy? For me, James Azar, my technical director and executive producer, Micah Smith, I want to say thanks for listening. This is Goodbye Privacy. We will see you guys next time.